0: And welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Omer Harris. He is an award-winning, best-selling author of five books, including his most recent publication, Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss, Leadership in the Era of of Corporate Social Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Quite a mouthful, but has so much good information uh, inside of it and is a really good resource for people. And in general about Omar, he is a former GM, having worked in four different continents, And but he was originally born in Pittsburgh, and he's now down in Charlotte, and he's got so many good things to talk about just from his background, along with the Good things that he teaches people. So I'm excited to hear about him today and get some knowledge and be ex- inspired. So, Omar, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Well, thank you, Sarah. Very happy to be with you this evening or recording. Um, so, yes, I was born in Pittsburgh. Uh, I only lived in Pennsylvania for five years, though. And then we moved on to Charleston, West Virginia, then on to Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh, I went to school in Tallahassee, Florida, which is where my kind of global adventure began. I got an internship, uh, to go work with Pfizer in Sao Paulo, Brazil when I was 23 and I spent 16 months in Brazil and learned the language and, you know, had a phenomenal time. And, and little did I know at that time that Brazil would be kind of, a, a, a theme in my career. I actually worked in Brazil three different times in three different moments of my life. Um, so it's kind of like the, the rule of threes, it just kind of all comes full circle for me. But I've also had the opportunity, you know, I've started my farmer career in Philadelphia, uh, working for Sharing Plow, and I was a, a hospital sales rep there for, for a year, um, working all around Philadelphia, and then I moved to New Jersey. Uh, and my career ultimately took me to abroad to uh, Istanbul, Turkey, uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, and back to Brazil, for one last ride, uh, and then I moved back to the U.S. last March, smack dab in the middle of the pandemic, uh, social justice protests, and uh, a very crucial American election.
0: So, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to work in all of these different countries and the different cultures that you were experiencing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it requires uh, I, the thing about the reason why I tell the story about how 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 much I've moved in my life is because. I had a built-in kind of adaptability that I didn't even know that was there because we moved so frequently. I mean, I went to four different elementary schools, so you're constantly used to showing up someplace, making an impression, you know, and and then knowing you might have to leave. And so, uh, you, you, I already had that kind of inside of me in terms of the ability to adapt quickly to new environments. And I learned that when I moved to Brazil the first time that I I could pick up a language in two months. Um, on my own with little to no uh, support. Uh, and when I moved to, and that's where I began to really understand what it is like, what you have to do f- for yourself when you move into a foreign country. Because the foreign country is not going to change for you. You have to change for it. You have to basically assimilate and adapt and flex yourself. And that's what I've been able to do when I was in Istanbul, Turkey, which is a very, very you know different culture, uh, a culture that's been around for thousands of years um, known famously for their hospitality, but also just a very kind of like not insular nationalistic place. And so you have to adapt. People weren't as friendly there as, you know, in Brazil, they're not as outgoing. And so it's a whole different vibe than I got from living in, in Sao Paulo, um, uh, and, 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 and harder to make friends. And so you just kind of have to make your adaptation to the culture, um, respect that culture, you know, once again, uh, I try to look at America from the Turkish point of view. To, to, to Turkey, America is like a petulant thirteen-year-old running the world. Like this country's been around for thousands of years. Society's been around. Holy Roman Empire, the Constantinople, the seat of the seat of humanity, right? And so, and you know, here comes uh, upstart United States. We've been you know around for you know what is it, four hundred years, five hundred years. So so it's kind of like it's interesting to reflect on your own home place from the from the point of view of a place that you're living in. Uh, different place, and then I moved to Indonesia, which is a completely different vibe. Very young country; over half the population is under the age of thirty. Uh, everybody gets married very young. It's a it's a predominantly Muslim nation, like Turkey, but um, in Turkey it's more Turkey's more secular than Indonesia is. Although in Indonesia the religion is far more like a personal, private thing. Um, than it is in in it is in other uh, Islamic nations. So, so and you get to see like the the fact that Indonesia is not one country. Like it's actually a uh, it's a it's a composition of tribes that decide to decided to work together and live together uh, and support each other. But there are actually significant differences between all the different tribes that exist in in, in over eighteen thousand islands, and and there's different nuances in terms of you know, uh, directness versus indirectness. I'm a very, you know, Americans were very direct. And one of the things you do when you're an expat and you go to these countries, they give you like this uh, this, um, this, index of, of where you are versus where the people you, you're working with are. And so I was basically on the directness scale, I was on the far right, and then the what was on the far left. And so it's very interesting to kind of how to, and I was a leader of an organization of 850 people. So how do you, how do I make sure I can connect and not scare people when i'm you know with my directness or my style so i had to really kind of adapt my style be quieter be more listening uh, mode be be a bit more uh, passive um just because you don't want to you know you know i'm a big guy i don't want to frighten anybody uh, <laughs> so and then back to brazil which is like home to me like coming back to brazil is like going home and but it's different it's interesting to see the brazil that i lived in in 2000 the brazil i lived in 2006 and In Brazil, I lived in 2018. Are three different moments in three different countries. In 2018, this is post two presidents being impeached and put in jail. This is on the cusp of their own uh, uh, nationalistic movement, their own populist movement happening in the country. Uh, people, you know, have gone from being very passive in 2000 to being very uh, outspoken uh, in 2018. So it was very interesting to see in one country kind of how the the evolution of that place. Over the course of time so it's, it was it's been a very interesting ride i think that the most important lesson for me was just you know i had to make the adaptation and you have to figure out what you're going to adapt to and what you're not going to adapt to
0: right now is there anywhere that you have wanted to go and work and you haven't had the chance yet
1: so when i when i got the job to go to sao paulo the first time when i was 23 and I actually i actually interviewed for three postings. One was in Tokyo, one was in Brazil, and one was in New York. And I got all three. Out of ninety students competing for the job, I got all three. They offered me all three and they said, listen, which one do you want to go to? And at that time I chose to go to Brazil because it was in the same hemisphere as my home. I could stay in contact with my family. Uh, I didn't want to go as far away to the other side of the world as Japan. But if I could go back and do it over again, I probably would have gone to Tokyo, Japan, because I've you know my my love and passion for the for the Japanese culture is 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 huge i it's my favorite food in the world um and when i went to tokyo finally in 2013 i was just blown away by by the place and and i wish i could have spent a lot more time there
0: right now you mentioned when you first went to brazil that it took you two months to learn the language so Mm -hmm. are languages something that are easy for you to learn and then also retain even if you're not using it very often
1: so Spanish in high school, I was, I, I took to Spanish naturally. So I was really, really good in that class. And so I think something about Latin languages or whatever it is, maybe the universe was preparing me for living in Brazil, even when I was in high school, who knows, but, um, you know, I, I learned Spanish really easily. And so it was not that hard to learn Portuguese off of the back of how much Spanish I had learned and got took Spanish in high school and in college. Right. And so, so I had a, a pretty firm basis on that language before moving to to brazil and was able to kind of flip it into the new language. although portuguese and spanish are, are they don't sound anything alike um when spoken uh there are there's plenty of similarities in the roots of words and 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 in the, the vocabulary that allows you to pick up things more quickly um so yeah i think i think that i had that i had that ability and then you know i i left brazil the second time in 2009 and didn't speak portuguese for nine years I went back to Brazil for a wedding in January 2016 uh, in Rio de Janeiro, and it just came right back. Like I hadn't spoken the language like in probably eight, you know, eight years, and I was still, it was still right there. And when I came back in 2018, I was really worried that my professional language skill would have dropped significantly to the point where I was actually asking for a professor. But within like within like four weeks, I was back to better than I was when I moved there when I lived there in 2006. So. It just all came back. So I guess like the way I describe learning languages is, you know, if you think about building, uh, constructing a highway in your brain. So English or your native language is is the main highway. And you want to learn a different language. Basically, these are like these are like the bridges or off ramps. And and so, you know, you build the scaffolding for the off ramp and then you put the concrete down when you live in the country and then it's there. That road is always there. You you just have to go find your way back to that off ramp. And then it's in your brain; it's, it's solidified. So the way I think about Portuguese is, you know, thirty years from now, if I don't speak Portuguese for, ne- for the next thirty years, and I go back to Brazil in thirty years, I'll still be able to speak the language.
0: Yeah. And what other languages do you know?
1: Well, I picked up some Turkish um, when I was in Istanbul. Uh, you, you have to because nobody speaks English. So you know, just getting into a taxi cab, you risk your life <laughs> because if you don't speak the language, you don't know where you're going to end up. And and then also in Indonesian, I learned quite a bit of Indonesian. Uh, the language is called Bahasa Indonesia. Bahasa means language, so in, you know Indonesian language, uh, but they call it Bahasa. So I learned Bahasa Indonesia uh, quite a bit. I, I told my staff enough to be dangerous. So, you know, you think you can talk about me behind my back. I know what you're saying. So I would I would just every now and again, I would just shock people by like, oh, you said I would They'll be talking amongst themselves. And I would say, oh, yeah, I agree with that. In English, I would say that. They're like, oh, crap. Omar knows, Omar knows what we're saying. <laughs> so uh, I learned enough to be to be dangerous. And then uh, then, you know, like I said, Spanish and then, of course, uh, the Portuguese.
0: Right. Now, what was it like being um, a business person? working where english was not the major language
1: uh i think in the office of course english is the is still the dominant mm-hmm. way of communicating so you know i worked when i'm when i'm in istanbul everybody has to speak english so we're dealing with 30 countries uh i was working in the regional office and we're dealing with 30 countries from uh russia all the way down to south africa but everybody you know is speaking speaking english and And uh, you have to get used to like everybody's different accents with English, which is funny because everybody has such a a different accent. Um, uh, But just part of the fun of the job is that you just you're like you're listening to how different people have learned to speak this language uh, over time. And little funny nuances that people use like in Turkey, uh, when they introduce themselves, they don't say I am they say this is. Like it would say, this is Omar, (laughs) like they're referring to someone else. (laughs) And I always thought that was the funniest thing in the world was like, why would you say this is like, it must be something from the Turkish root. But, you know, they don't say I am Omar to say that this is Sarah. This is, you know, like they're introducing somebody else. I always thought that was uh, cute. Um, So, so, but in Brazil and in Indonesia, so what I, what I encountered was when I was in Brazil, when I was 23, only the higher level executives spoke English. And this worked out in my favor because I just hung out. I was an intern. I just hung out with the secretaries all day. So we would go to, I would go to lunch with the secretaries and listen to them talk about novellas and whatever boyfriends or whatever is going on in their lives. And just, you know, immerse myself in Portuguese. So it really helped me that no one spoke English around me because I was able to absorb the language much faster. Um, outside of the office in Turkey, everybody speaks Turkish. So you just kind of have to learn Turkish to get around. Indonesia is the same way in the office. The higher level executive all speak English very well, but then um, nobody else speaks English to the point where, and now I'm a senior leader in the organization, I have to have a translator. I never had to speak through a translator before. And this was a very big wake-up call for me about how complex uh, I tend to be in terms of how I communicate. I'll give you an example. The first time I met my my sales organization, which was around, uh, the sales leaders of my organization, around, which were around 150 people. In this meeting, it's my first introduction to them. uh, And I have 45 minutes allotted for my introduction. And I had, I think I had 45 slides. So in, in English, I would have been okay, right? I could have gotten through that in 45 minutes. I was talking for an hour and 45 minutes through my translator because I had to stop every time I, was, I would say something, stop, and they would translate. Then I would say something, stop, and translate. So by the time I left Indonesia three and a half years later, my decks, my presentations would be no more than seven slides. You know, so I learned to go from like 45 slides to seven slides. So, you know, you, I, it, it transformed how I communicate, which is a very valuable tool, you know? So I took that back to Brazil and I'm still very succinct. People are like, Omar's very, he has a natural ability to just, you know, right through to the chase i'm like well, i learned that in indonesia i had no choice i couldn't you know have these robust explanations and all this flowery language i had to just kind of cut right through to the core of what i was trying to say
0: right that makes a lot of sense now, yeah. what, now what was it like moving back to america in
1: 2020 it was uh you know i was out of the country for eight years I come back for holidays and things of that nature, but, you know, living here is a whole different beast. And then also moving back to the South, which I, you know, last time I lived in the South was when I was a college student when I was leaving Tallahassee, Florida. So, you know, it's, it's two different culture shocks. It's coming back to the U S coming back to the South after all of this stuff has happened, you know, you know, uh, Obama's last term and then Trump's election. And then, you know, all the things are happening. So, I was, you know, troubled, uh, to say the least by some of the things that, that were happening, um, especially when it related to the continuous, um, you know, harm that was being done to African-Americans by police, um, that was troubling to me. And, and I was very inspired by the, by the peaceful protesting that was going on. Um, and, and also you know, of course, we go into lockdown with the pandemic at the same time. So it's like, you know, it's all these things happening. And then you have an election coming up that you know is consequential. Everybody's on lockdown. Everybody's going crazy. <laughs> and it was just this really weird time to be back in America. But I wouldn't, I w- I'll would, i tell you this, Sarah, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere in the world, but, but America when the pandemic hit, because at least here, you know, um, and shout out to all the frontline, you know, workers or shout out to all the people who kept the economy going because in the U.S., you know, we were able to, we, we complain a lot, first four problems, but you could order your food through Uber Eats, you get your deliveries through Amazon, you could, you could continue living your life. You had Netflix, it worked all the time, you didn't have Wi-Fi problems. So if I had been in Brazil, I would have literally starved because the country literally locked down, like it stopped. And I was on my own by myself, you know, and I don't cook. <laughs> so I would have, if no restaurants were open, I literally would have died. Like I, it would have been the end of me. So I, 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 I would have to go live with my my assistant because I, I you know, I, I wouldn't have had any other way to eat. So basically, you know, I don't take that for granted, that at least in the middle of all this stuff, uh, the American economy still runs. It still works. And I had that perspective perspective from living in other places where, you know, um, this kind of thing can literally really shut everything down. We complain about things being shut down. No, it it really got shut down in places like the countryside of Italy and and Indonesia and Brazil. You know, these are places where real shutdowns happen. We we had minor inconveniences, I would say.
0: Yeah. Now, what was it like for you? Um, Obviously, like the book title, social justice is obviously something that's very important to you. So what was being on our lockdown like while everything was going on?
1: Well, I had just published a book last April called The Servant Leaders Manifesto. So I was in publication mode. I was getting the book out there. All this is happening. I'm having conversations with my friends. One thing that was cool is I was able to connect with, reconnect with a lot of my friends virtually cause we were just talking to each other a lot more and everybody was kind of more available because um, no one was commuting and traveling. And so everyone was kind of on, we could just easily connect. So I, I reconnected with a lot of people and we're having these, you know, crucial conversations, you know, my friends, you know, some of my best friends are, are, are white and they, you know, they, they called me during, you know, the George Floyd situation and they they want to know my take on it and, and know what I'm experiencing. And a lot of my, my white friends had epiphanies during this moment last year about equity and about identity and about the differences between people, right? And how we we go through life. And it was interesting. I've been friends with people for a long time that were having these, these awakenings and epiphanies about, Oh, wow, that that's, this is, you know, really heavy stuff that people are dealing with. And, and, and so I began to think, I was like, well, I need to, I'm feeling the need to speak on, speak more about, about this, but I don't know how exactly, uh i'm gonna do that and then one of my friends who who works in the sustainability space uh, who's actually a a contributor uh to the book jd capuano he he introduced me to the term jedi which he got from the uh agriculture uh movement which is in there's a guy named Marcelo bonta who i think was the first person to coin the phrase uh jedi um and he works he's a he's a a a you know, social justice individual who works in the the agriculture and environmental uh, space. And and so when he told me that acronym, I had actually written in my book, before I ever knew the acronym existed, a phrase that said, you know, leaders, we should be Jedi leaders and not bosses. And when I, when I, when I saw the acronym Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, an idea germinated immediately in my brain, which is, was like, this is the connection to modern leadership. Like, this is basically how we modernize and go from this boss level and we level up to a world where, you know, your manager is somebody who's uh, not only gets paid more than you, but is someone who is a little bit more evolved and can help you pull you up levels in terms of your development in a world where business is about doing more than just, uh, uh, profits so we saw all these corporations make these broad statements and these commitments last summer and it's inspiring to see these companies step out like this and basically make these big these big broad statements and support we never I never saw them in my lifetime I mean MLK would have been like where were you guys at <laughs> in the 60s <laughs> you know when I was we were stepping up but anyway you know never you know uh, better late than never and and so I, I'm like but where's the accountability going to come from So um, and so I I wanted to write a a very aspirational book that would help people bridge from where they are today to what I call modern leadership principles and and really get to the root of what business leadership is all about Um, and the business of leading people. What does it mean, you know, at the end of the day? And that's that's really uh, and leaning into the job of a leader, which is to to be to individualize every employee's experience and understand. What are the injustices that they face? What are the inequities that exist in this ecosystem? Uh, how can you capitalize on their diversity, and, and how can you enhance their feeling of belonging and inclusion? It doesn't matter whether we're talking about if whether whatever happened last year happened or not; these things are still relevant. They'll be relevant ten years from now. They'll be relevant thirty years from now. And so, I thought I'd come across, I'd happen upon something that was really powerful, concrete, that would add value continuously over time, and not be something that was just you know kind of uh, of this moment.
0: Right. Now, what would you recommend for bosses or leaders to be doing to help them become better leaders and not just be considered like, oh, you're a boss?
1: Right, right. Well, the thing that I always say is to I ask people to question their reason for being leaders in the first place. So in the book, I have a chapter where I tell two different case studies, fictional case studies about two women and their journeys up the corporate ladder. Uh, one woman, his name is Millie, and Millie is in it for the ego. She's in it for the accolades, for the praise, for the ego, for the power. And and she she has a career that reflects that, that pursuit. And then Yolanda is another talent who's in it, but she's in it for the people. She's in it for the development. She's in it for the service aspect of it. They both end up at the same place, but one of them has had a far more uh, positive impact on everybody And the other has been a scorched earth type of person. And so the whole idea of this allegory is to say, you have a choice in how you show up, you know, and it matters to everybody and it matters to you. Cause at the end of the day, when you get to be 50, 60 years old and you look back on your career, you want to be proud of what you did. You want to be proud of how you did it. Um, And, and not just be saying, you know, well, these were the times that I had to do what I had to do. No, there's always a choice in how we interact with other human beings and it's inexcusable now, I think, as a leader, if you just want to call yourself a leader, then you have to remove the ego from the equation. And so I talk a lot about, you know, the end of the ego um, and re- reducing the ego. And when you do that, you re- when you reduce your self-orientation, it builds a bridge between yourself and others. And that's the beginning of you modernizing your leadership approach. Right. That, and that
0: makes a lot of sense, just As simple as realizing your ego and becoming a a different person and having a different mindset.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, what sort of background do you have that you've helped your own knowledge on practices in diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and all of the other great things when it comes to equity?
1: I just have my, my, you know, before writing the book, I have my personal journey. So really, you know, as when I joined my first farmer company, uh, after I got my MBA at the age of 25, I was the only person, black person in marketing in a 30,000 person organization. And, you know, uh, and then I go on to be uh, the youngest director, senior director of marketing in the company's history. And, And once again, one of like three black people in marketing in the organization. And then, you know, I go on to To be a general manager, and I'm the only African American general manager in the world for a company with 110,000 employees. And then I go back to Brazil, and I'm the only black general manager, period, in the world. And and I'm seeing as I matriculate through the cor- corporations, uh, you know, I I I see you know the Clarion call to action to 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 bring more female represent, representation in, but I don't see the same thing happening to other identities in corporations everyone else is kind of fighting and even females are still fighting uh fighting the good fight we still only, we still only have like 10 female ceos at the top fortune for the fortune 500 companies So not a lot you know it's still 90 or 88 white men who are ceos so we have a long way to go in terms of representation and balance but for me i just you know the further i progressed the the further the further away i felt you know from that progress and And, um, and I knew that when I was trying to fight certain fights or, you know, make certain things happen for, for people who look like me, um, it was always, you know, a battle. It was always, you know, people, you know, underestimate or weren't casting a wide enough net or, you know, didn't value or had biases against, you know, those kind of things. I didn't really, if, if people were biased against me due to race, I don't, I don't, I didn't really experience it, uh, from that perspective, but just the fact that I'm the only one makes makes me feel like there's bias around me. Like, why am I the only guy? You know, why am I the only one here? You know, I mean, there's a there's a million, billion talented, you know, African American people. So so for me it was more like that isolation and wanting that to stop. And so I think that was kind of the driving energy when I was writing the book was like, you know, you know, we have to unlock this thing. Like, how do we unlock it? And, you know, after eight years away, coming back to the US, I'm like, this is what my life is gonna be about. This is what next stage of my life i spent 20 years in corporate the next 20 are about unlocking corporate and modernizing leadership so that everybody has a equal chance to prosper and play and that businesses themselves hold themselves to the highest of standards
0: right so what is it like then i mean you said that you didn't necessarily feel biased against you but like you obviously you know you were the only one in a lot of these situations so have you had opportunities where you haven't then been the only one and you've been able to be in an inclusive environment?
1: Not in my professional career in the pharmaceutical industry. No, no, I never, I never had that opportunity. Um, so, so that was not my career story. You know, my career story was me looking around like, okay, where's everybody else at? <laughs> you know, that's that's been my career story. and, and to some people, that's fine but that's not the way I was raised. That's not the way I, I came up, you know? Um, And, you know, I went to a historically black college and university and we, we preach, you know, each one, teach one, reach one, pull everybody up and all these things. Uh, But because I was working ex-US, you know, I didn't have the opportunities that I would have loved to, if I was working in the U S and at the same level, I would have made a huge difference in terms of recruiting and all those policies. So it was kind of like, you get to the VP level, then what can you do? What are the, what are the rules you can kind of, how do you play the game at this level so that you can utilize your new influence to actually change things positively for, um, for whoever, whatever constituency you believe in. And, you know, I began to understand that there's these, there's these like five huge inequities that every business has, and it all starts with uh, privileged hiring. So we, we hire, you know it's, you know companies treat it their getting in like it's a like it is a um uh, such a huge competition to get in the door in a lot of these companies right like it's you know just to say you made it into google or to you know amazon or whatever it is like you have the all about the prestige and they only source what they call from the best schools and so they leave a lot of people out that could be just as talented probably more passionate um in their, in their, in their recruiting processes. So they, so the inequity begins right from recruiting and then it starts and flows into how it's onboarding. Cause when you come into a corporation like that, if you are a privileged talent, then they say it's or swim onboarding. So basically, you know, it's on you to survive in this environment. And if you, if you can't make it here, then it's on you. It wasn't because we failed as an organization. And so if you're a marginalized identity, I remember coming into to sharing plow 25 and, you know, I had this this great position, but I had a, a manager who really just she didn't see any value in me, and would basically was like, listen, if you don't show me something in two months, I'm getting you, I'm firing you out of the company. And it's like, but you know, the company spent all this money to bring me here. Why would you just want to get rid of me like like that? Like, so you know, why do companies spend so much money in recruiting and hiring if they're just gonna jettison people out the door in three months? You know, people if you think about sports and development, like we know that talent development takes a long time. It's, you have to cultivate, you have to nurture people. Right. But companies tend to look at it as a, you know, like a squid game and they're trying to get, you know, take people out um, the entire, the entire time. So that's the, the second problem is that. And then the third is, you know, the whole thing of becoming like our culture, like becoming like us, like becoming a PG, a PNG or becoming a Facebook or becoming a Googler, like, they take your diversity and say listen we don't want you to be we don't want that from you we want you to be like this we want to put you in these constraints which is like ridiculous to me which because why would you hire people from all different walks of life life and then make them all kind of standardize themselves that that kind of defeats the purpose of diversity right mm-hmm. so and this is this is a major issue that that these companies are facing is is, is once again that uh, compensation practices that are actually um, corrupted because we all know that um, if you work at a corporation you've seen these compensation discussions about who can get who hired and who's getting who paid what, it ultimately comes down to the, the passion of the, ma- the hiring manager and how bad they want that employee as to what the person gets paid. And nobody has any consideration of the people who are already working doing the same job. So external people come in, they raise the bar in terms of salary, but then the other people are at a lower baseline. It's not fair, right? Um, but we're, we're pursuing the top talents. So we have to do what we have to do. And so this, these kind of these archaic ideas and then finally target determination. At the end of the day, you go through, so basically you you went to the right schools, you got hired and you survived the onboarding process and you adapted to the environment and you sucked it up by, for, not, for not being paid enough. And then if anything goes wrong in a company, you can just be cut like that. If anything goes wrong, COVID hits. We're going to terminate whatever twenty percent of our workforce, and you're last in, first out, or first in, last out. You're and you're gone, and and the people who should be leaving are the people who get paid the most money. Like they basically they represent more of a, a weight on the, the company's financials than you do. Why aren't they the first to go? You know what I'm saying? So this whole thing is is inequity. There's inequity in all five of these processes. And, and and so because of my vantage point, because, you know, I have experienced those inequities, but also uh, had, you know, basically reinforced some of them as a leader later on in my career, I was like, OK, I can see this whole cycle and this is the cycle we have to break.
0: Right. I want to divert a little bit off of what you're just talking about. Um, this is going to seem a little random, but I'm curious to know, because you went to a historically black college or university and then went to, into a field that was very much not that, what would you say to students who are going to be facing that now, having gone to, or like being in a school that's got a good background in diversity, equity, inclusion, and then going somewhere that still has work to do in their practices?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, well, I mean, I think that, you know, um, most If you come from an immigrant family, you know, second generation immigrant family, if you're from a black family in America, you've been being prepared for the white workforce your entire life. Your parents have been preparing you for this. You know, any brown people, their parents have been preparing them for this their entire life. So it's not even about the school. It's about, you know, you know, when I was leaving the house when I was a kid, my mom telling me, you know, you represent your family and your people and your race. Like, you know, as a kid, I mean, I'm getting this pressure. And so you know that you can't just get away with what everybody else is getting away with. You have to do things. You have, you have to be better. You have to show up more perfectly. You have to, you don't want, you have no margin for error. Um, but what I would tell people today is I would say, listen, that, that, that needs to stop. We need to stop assimilating so much. We have to kind of force the environment to to accept us for who we are. So, you know, don't change your hairstyle. Uh, don't, you know, don't, don't, don't make concessions just to get a job, you know, and our, our parents were, were the generation that was telling us, you have to, you have to be, you look like this and be like this to get the best job. You have to be clean cut, fresh shaven, no tattoos, blah, blah. that's like gen, you know, the gen X, you know, advice. And then, you know, now you have, you know, people say, if you have uh you know, the, the kind of like those big earrings in your ear, whatever it is, tattoos, you can only work as a barista at Starbucks. Like, no. Like why can't that person be a CEO just because of choices they make about how they want to present themselves to the world. That means they can't be a a CEO. Uh, No. I mean, I think that that's ridiculous. So I think that people should double down on their identity. Don't be, don't be, you know, just controversial, but be yourself, be true to yourself Um, because it, it really doesn't matter. Like I said before, when they want to terminate you, they're going to terminate you regardless of whether you're clean cut or whether you have tattoos. It's going to happen. So you might as well be yourself <laughs> is the way I look at it today. Um, and I think that that's the advice I would give to people coming out now is just be yourself. Uh, don't don't worry about assimilating. Don't try to be perfect. Don't put that pressure on yourself. Do your best. Learn, develop. If the environment is not right for you, Jump. Uh, I'm I'm fully on board with the millennial Gen Z. You know, find a side hustle, find a way to 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 not be so dependent on a single employer, or a single source of income. There's too many streams of income today that we can make, and people are too talented these days. You know, uh, if you if you look at just reels, and stories, and TikTok, like who knew we had this much talent, this creative talent in the world before these platforms existed, right? Like. The entire it's like the entire world is full of actors like it's like it's amazing that the creative talent people have uh i'm astounded by it and so i would say you know once again that the rule the new rules are if you know don't put more into your employer the employer puts into you
0: yeah that's that's some really good advice now did you have to make any concessions when going into the workforce with your identity Yeah, I
1: completely, you know, I assimilated fully, you know, Um, and you become like the people who are around you. So, so you, and you start doing what they do. So I'm, I'm around older, mostly white men with families and I'm a single black guy at the time coming in uh, and you start emulating their lifestyle. You start drinking what they drink and doing what they do and talking how they talk. And, you know, it's, it's natural in a culture that you're going to do that, right? It's going to happen. But you're not even aware that it's happening, uh, and and until you're out of that environment, you're like, oh, what was I doing in that? you know, who was I in that moment? Um, and, and then you become a leader, and then you have to decide. I think the best thing for me was I got to a leadership role fairly quickly. So then at that moment, it's like, okay, now it's about I'm the person defining the culture, right? So, and what kind of culture do I want to define? Well, I want to create a culture that values every person's diversity. And so right from the beginning, in 2006, I was practicing diversity, uh, practicing maximizing diversity. So taking whatever somebody showed up with and getting the most out of that diversity. So I've been doing that for 15 years. And, and because I'm doing that uh, and getting uh, and individualizing my leadership approach, I'm, an, I'm enhancing inclusion because people feel that their senior leader sees them uh, you know, I tell all my people, you know, see the human before you see the role. You know, don't see a product manager. See Sarah, <laughs> the product manager, you know, uh, and, and see the human, not the role. And so I've been practicing you know, these, these advanced diversity and inclusion practices in my work for quite a long time. I just wouldn't have called them that at the time. I didn't know there was a name for it, what I was doing. And also fighting inequities. So I remember when i was in brazil in 2006 there was an there was an end of year party and um the rule was that the uh janitorial staff the people who the people who had basically cleaned up our office and who were for full-time employees but who were like kind of behind the scenes uh, doing that stuff were not allowed to go to the end of year party and i said no i said if they can't come nobody's coming and I remember g- gaining support and Alan basically saying, listen, we need to have everybody. This is our company. This is, you know, why would we set that, why would we set that bar? Why are we, you know, we should, we're, we're all celebrating our success as an organization. And they're a big part of our success. You know, uh, uh, Jenny, if you don't get your coffee at 8.05 in the morning properly, how do you feel? So that, you know, when, when Susie comes and brings you that, you know, you should, you should be grateful for these people. They, they make our lives better and we held the line and we actually were able to to you know get them there and and um and they were so happy to be there and everyone was so happy to be really welcoming of them and we set a new we set a new precedent from that moment on that that basically every employee comes to the annual party it's a small thing but it's a big thing you know Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's just being aware of these kind of things around in your environment like these kind of practices that don't make any sense and standing up and making and making your voice heard and that's what Fundamentally, equity. If we had, you know, even twenty percent of leaders in corporations who were just willing to stand up if they saw something that was wrong in a practice and make a big deal about it, there would be no diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants in the world. Because <laughs> that's all we tell them to do. We come in and we say, "Listen, this is what you got to do. Listen to your people. These are is the issues." And you know, so it's really about creating those environments where people can stand up and speak up and and feel comfortable and that they're, you know, they're, they're the company's going to have their back.
0: Mm -hmm. So what is it that you hope to do with this next section of your career?
1: Yeah. So for me, it's, it's, I I really hope to, to, I mean, I I hate to sound brash or bold, but to transform leadership. Um, I, I think, I think, you know, I, I worked long enough, and I saw enough, and I l- went through enough, and it was global enough that I feel like um, the vantage point. Uh, uh, I have collected enough data points to know kind of where the where the polar north should be, and to build coalitions to try to help you know business go there. Because I was thinking about this earlier today. Uh, I don't know if you saw. I don't know if you follow football, but you saw John Gruden. He was a he was a uh, coach of the, of the uh, Las Vegas Raiders basically resigning because of statements for 10 years. And I was like, you know, this is happening in sports music and, and, and film, but you don't see any CEOs or senior executives being taken out for emails. They sent 10 years ago, because every company is so insular, right? These guys aren't tweeting. They're not, but there's a whole, I mean, if you were to go and look at any executives, emails. <laughs> You know, there will be a lot lot of resignations happening all over, all over the world. And, and so they've been protected for now. But I mean, I I say that, you know, every company is a tweet away from ruin. Every company is a tweet away from ruin and and, and CEOs don't understand how precarious their position is these days um, and how they need to revamp this entire thing if they want to stay in business because, you know, CEO tenure is shorter than ever before. Um, executive tenure is shorter than ever before and and if it, if it ultimately comes down to your survival and your power then the fastest way to maintain power is to distribute that power to everybody else in your organization uh, that's how you maintain you're going to maintain your position in the in the modern age not by trying to consolidate power that's not going to work anymore it's going to be by distributing power and empowering others and building that's what's gonna what's going to do it. I mean, I think that, you know, a great example is is if you think about Facebook um, in the beginning, they had this open office culture and everybody was going in and having fun. And now you go to Facebook, everyone signs NDAs. When you walk in the door, you're not allowed to see like, you're allowed to see like 20% of the office space. Uh, Everything is closed off. Like that's an example of a company that's trying just to, just to hold on to its power as opposed to, you should become more open, more transparent, more you know, uh, honest and clear in your and who you are, communicating your your identity, not not trying to go behind you know the gray curtain uh, for fear that somebody will see something or say something that will denigrate. If 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 there's that that if there's that much bad stuff lying around that you have to basically people can only see twenty percent. <laughs> I'm really concerned about what's happening inside of your, your, your organization. Like, you know, companies should be willing to throw the doors open to the public and be like, Hey, come check us out. we got nothing to hide. Um, But that's not what happened. So I think I want to help create that environment where first of all, for employees, first of all, you know um, we, you know, there's been statistics that state that by 2043, the workforce is going to be more, black and brown, then it is going to be white. So in that, and and I know that if things don't change between now and 2043, the conditions for that world are going to be horrible for those people because of people trying to hold on to status and power and ego. Um, And so we got to let it go. And so my work, hopefully over the next period of my life is going to be about proving to people you can let go of this perceptual power and privilege and still reap significant benefits and not have to and actually embrace change and embrace the otherness of the world and embrace modernity and and everything's going to be okay and we all can prosper together you know and and that's really what i want to that's what i stand for and that's what i I want to work on and what i am working on
0: yeah and i think it's a, a great mission and i hope to see it come come to life because you know like you said we have to be prepared for what the future is going to bring and if things don't start to change now it's not going to be good for a lot of people now i am curious if you don't mind answering um because you mentioned the coach and that literally happened today um these emails coming public or whatever it was exactly that happened i am a headline reader i don't necessarily read all the articles (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm curious to know your opinion on the fact that he is now facing repercussions from something that happened 10 years ago, or someone who might be a millennial might be then reaping for something that they were doing when they were a teenager and didn't even realize what they were doing online and how it could hurt them later. How do you feel about those things impacting people now?
1: Well, there's two ways to think about it. So if, if there's a presidential candidate who's a Gen, let's say a millennial or general Zer, in about 10 years, and there's no dirt from their past, I would be very concerned. Because that means that person has been crafting or deleting stuff from the beginning of their life with preparation for that role. So I would be, be really, I'd rather have a candidate with a bunch of stuff because that's the world they grew up in, where everything, your entire life was recorded, you know, um, uh, and, and it's all online and there's going to be stuff people are going to find about you. So that, that's the new world of politicians and leaders moving forward is that, that, that this, this electronic trail, right? This media trail is going to follow you. Um, so you see someone who doesn't have the, that trail. Watch out. <laughs> is what I would say. Cause they're, this is someone who's being, you know, uh, manufactured to look a certain way for, for the public. Um, I, I think that uh, I think that we have to teach our kids, you know, that that this is the world. Like basically, you know, I, I would tell people don't be followers. Um, even certain sounds that people are utilizing in their stories or their reels can come back to haunt you, right? If you use a sound that you, that's using vulgar or sexist or whatever language, you can be blamed for the sound in your. Even if you're saying something else or making a whole different point, the fact that you utilize that sound just because it was popular and it was trending might ruin your chances for opportunity in the future because, you know, once again, artificial intelligence is going to be the, the, the what's picking people for work in the next five to ten years. HR has outsourced recruiting to the robots. And so, so and the robots are going to basically just – put your name in and scour everywhere you've been and basically compile. And, you know, um, AI is able to, you know, look at photos now and read uh, text now and read, you know, so imagine all of, by the time you're 25, all of the, the file on you that exists online. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, it's hard to curate that is what I would say. Once again, I say, be yourself. I think that authenticity is is what's going to play moving forward. And we all know that kids are stupid and do dumb stuff. You know, adults are stupid and do dumb stuff. So just own up to it. I think the most important thing is when it comes out, own up to it. Don't try to bury it. Which is why I respect what Gruden did. Is he came out and he just owned up to it and he and he took he, and he bowed out. You know, the thing that bothers me is the the people who think they can gaslight you and say, "Oh, that didn't happen." We all see it, man. Like we're seeing it right now. Though I didn't, I didn't do that. I don't know what you are talking about. You know the whole Shaggy, it wasn't me. You know I don't, I don't know what you are talking about. <laughs> and it's amazing that it's working in some instances where people are like, "Oh, I didn't do that." And if they say it, they, they keep repeating it enough, people start believing, "Oh, they didn't do that." And that's the, that's a bigger problem for me is this whole like you know gaslighting thing where people are trying to say, you know, you didn't see anything here, you know, nothing happened uh, when we know what we saw. So I think that. If if something comes out about your past, just own up to it. Um, I think this whole cancel culture thing is going to evolve and we, we will moderate. Just like in the 90s when we had the whole euphemistic speak and we went to that phase and then things mellowed out. And we're going to mellow out a little bit now when we go forward because these Gen Zers are going to become parents. They're going to start doing dumb stuff. And then they're going to be like, Oh, I don't want to be held accountable for the thing I said 10 years ago. So let's, let's, let's chill this whole thing out a little bit. It was, well, it was fun to be on Twitter attacking, you know, Kevin Hart when I was 19, but when I'm 39, like I don't, I'm Kevin Hart. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want people coming at me. So, you know, I think that it's just, I think we all have to just, you know, embrace the human experience, embrace that. We all have faults. We all do dumb stuff. Um it's kind of impossible to curate your experience. But I mean, I think that, you know, maintain make sure make sure your privacy settings are are tight. You know, make it don't make it easy for the robots is what I would say as well.
0: Uh, oh, that's some some great advice, <laughs> and some good viewpoints on that. So thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners before we start to wrap things up?
1: Support. I mean, I think I think that, you know, uh, Alternative points of view and different identities who are, who are talking about leadership need to be supported. I just would appreciate the support of the audience in terms of uh, of picking up my book and checking it out and seeing seeing what you can take away from it um, and apply to your own you know leadership style um, and 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 really think about your impact on other people. I think that you know the more we can consider be more considerate about how we impact others. Uh, the better the world will be. I know we live in this c- increasingly me, 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 look at me. You know, it's all about me kind of society. But um, I, I say, tell people to resist that urge to make it about yourself and and uh, turn that light, shed that light on others who need more support than you and, and support them and help them because that's where the real benefit comes from. And that's where the greatest feeling of of of, of living comes from, is actually helping other
0: people. Yeah. Now, at the end, with all of my guests, I do ask a random question. Mm-hmm. So my question for you is, if you could have unlimited supply of something, what would it be?
1: Mm. I would say unlimited supply of, of positive energy. So I'd never have any dips. I'm always able to give thousand percent that would be that would be my ask if i had that because i would i could do a lot with a limited supply of positive energy
0: all right that brings this episode to a close for more information on omar best way to find him is know that he is the only omar l harris out there so that is the best way to find him i will be leaving his website directly in the description as long along with his linkedin and his twitter handles so you can check him out that way and find his book and and take a good read through that to learn more information i definitely recommend it And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description. It'll bring you to all past episodes. It'll give you the access to all of the episodes in written format as well. And all of our social media. So Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily or be a guest on the podcast, that information is there as well. So I'd love to hear from you. So thank you, Omar, for spending time with me today, and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye.
1: Bye, take care.